Welcome to the Cyber Guy Podcast, your source for engaging cyber education, cyber discussions, and a look at current cyber news and trends with retired FBI Special Agent Darren Mott. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Cyber Guy Podcast. I am Darren Mott, retired FBI Supervisory Special Agent. Uh, and in this episode, I'm going to have a very long conversation with a very smart man, Arun Vishwanath. He uh, wrote the book, The Weakest Link, How to Diagnose, Detect, and Defend Users from Phishing. It's a very, I mean, if you've listened to no other podcast in the last year or two, this is one you should listen to because he goes into great detail about social engineering, why it works, how long it's been around. I mean, there's just a lot of information that's really valuable uh, to anyone uh, who uh, takes the time to listen. So we will talk with him in a bit. I'm going to take a little different path here on this particular podcast. Today is September 11th when I'm recording this particular part of the podcast. kind of want to talk about what that day was like for me as a fairly new FBI agent in 2001. And before I do that, I do want to apologize for taking a couple of weeks off from the podcast. I did a little traveling. We went to the beach, did a couple other things. I honestly just got lazy in August and um, kind of kept pushing the podcast off. So hopefully now that falls here, football season's back in play. So I'll be, you know, sitting home on weekends, watching football, having some time. I can uh, get back into the swing of things of trying to do this on a weekly basis. So if uh, you think of any topics that you would like to hear about, feel free to send me an email, darren at thecyberguy.com, cyber spelled C-Y-B-U-R, and I will look to uh, to do those topics. But before I get to my interview with Arun, I want to talk about September 11th and kind of what that was like for me. I don't do a lot of stuff like this on the podcast, but because of what today is, I wanted to kind of honor those people that, that perished during that day, the agents that I know that, that worked uh, at Ground Zero um, and, and things like that. And so I want to kind of talk about what it was like living through 9-11. I remember sitting at my desk in the Charlotte field office. It's actually working on some proposals to do what would end up being a five-year undercover that I ultimately did um, that you can go back and listen uh, episode four that I talked with a guy I worked with on that who was a source for mine. Um, but I was working on that when the source called and said, hey, did you see that someone, some airplane, some little airplane just flew into the World Trade Center. I said, no, I had not obviously seen that or heard that. So we talked a little bit. He thought it was like a small little um, rotary wing plane kind of thing. So, or not rotary wing, sorry, a um, just a propeller plane. So I went down to our operations center in the Charlotte field office, which was uh, two floors below me. And I went in and was watching the video or watching the TVs because we had a bunch of TVs that had news on. And I saw the second plane fly into the World Trade Center. And I thought it was a recording of the first one and then came to find out it was the second plane. And that's when obviously everything kind of changed. At that point, we realized that the U.S. was under attack. We started to mobilize agents and get in, get information from headquarters. And, you know, in all the things going on today with what with the FBI, with the raid on Mar-a-Lago and all that stuff, you know, the FBI has a very you know, questionable reputation at this point because of the way the media portrays it and things like that. Um, but this kind of situation is what the FBI exists to do. These kind of investigations to marshal resources, to do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons. And that has always been the mantra, I think, of the FBI. Regardless of what you think about, again, what's going on today, the, 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 rank and file agents and support personnel that work in the field offices go to work every day to do the right thing 
for the American people. Sure. Are there corrupt people within the FBI? Yeah, there's corrupt people in every organization. Think of your organization. You got assholes that work there as well. So, so you know, the FBI is not immune to that. But when 9-11 hit, um, I remember that um, the plane went into the Pentagon. Ultimately, we had a big meeting with everybody in the office with our assistant special agent in charge. And he said, obviously, we're under attack. And we saw the first World Trade Center collapse during that particular meeting. And basically, we marshaled our resources. It didn't matter what you worked at that day. If you worked violent crime, you worked cyber crime, you worked counterintelligence, you worked bank robberies, everybody worked counterterrorism for the next several months within the Bureau. And so we went around, we interviewed a lot of people, we got a lot of leads, and we were really the only organization with the capability to do that thing domestically. You couldn't do that with local local police departments, you couldn't do that with any other federal agency. The FBI was well positioned to be able to marshal those resources to do all that stuff. I remember interviewing, going out and interviewing a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons. You know, they may have been checking, you know, there's a lot of checking plane numbers. Um, I talked to one guy and he had been online and we had gotten his name through a source of different methodologies. And he was just kind of, he was supposed to be on one of the flights or he knew someone on a flight. And so he had gone online after this happened to see, get some information on it. Uh, it was pretty, I mean, you know, it was a pretty innocuous interview. Uh, he was not certainly involved in any way, shape or form, but we did a lot of those interviews. Um, it was a very odd time in the sense that we were bringing up resources and systems that had not been tested before. I do know there were a couple people that were interviewed several times simply because we were still working with paper at the time. Um, in 2001, the FBI did not have a very robust online case management system. It would be several years before we got anything close to a reasonable case management system that we could do everything digitally. So everything was kind of done by, by um, paper. People would call in with leads. And I remember I worked midnight to noon every day for three months uh, and took a lot of calls at night, took a lot of calls during the day. A lot of people uh, all over the country just confused, scared. You know, I remember one person called and said, yes, um, there were two, two people, you know, which looked like, you know, Muslims that were walking down our street cheering, um, but no other information. So it's kind of hard to follow up on two, two individuals walking down your street without names and in, in, in stuff like that. But no one knew that. They, they just knew that if they saw something, they should call the FBI. So a lot of people called the, the FBI. We tried to run down a bunch of different leads. We did a lot of things over the course of those months as we worked, uh, what ended up being what was called the uh, pent bomb was the name of the case overall. And everybody documented their stuff to those case files. Uh, and so I, I do want to take the time to, to remember an agent that I worked with at the time when I first got to the Charlotte field office, I was, uh, fortunate enough to be assigned to the cyber squad, which was one of only 16 in the FBI at the time in 2000. And one of the guys I met on the squad, his name was Jerry Senator. Uh, he was he was your typical FBI agent. He was great at what he did. He was on the SWAT team. He was on the evidence response team. He did a lot of different things for the Bureau. And he worked on the cyber squad. Now, cyber wasn't, you know, his main um, skill set, needless to say, but he was a good agent, good guy to talk to. If you needed to know how something works in the Bureau, you could go to Jerry. He would tell you how to make it work correctly. Um, and Jerry was one of the ones who reported to the ground zero recovery site for, for many months. And ultimately, sadly, uh, because of his work with 9-11, he ultimately developed non-Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, and passed away, sadly, in 2010 or 11, somewhere in that time frame. I should probably know that off the top of my head, but I don't. Uh, I'd already left Charlotte at that time. I was in the Cleveland field office when, when he passed. He's not the only person, obviously, to have passed away because of their efforts with 9-11. There were, there were many FBI agents, many, um, you know, New York City uh, 
first responders that passed away at, you know, obviously at the moment of the, of the event, but then afterwards due to stuff, uh, cancer causing agents at the recovery site. So we, we recognize their mem- their, their work as well, but I knew Jerry personally, uh, and that was a tough one. So I wanted to take some time with this particular podcast on 9-11 to remember Jerry and all the other first responders who ultimately gave their lives for, for working for the mission, for the country and trying to, again, do the right thing for the right reasons in the right way. So we remember them on this 9-11. So let me go now. I'm not going to talk cyber news. If you want cyber news, there's plenty of podcasts. Go find one. You can listen to all sorts of cyber news. I'll return with a more uh, look at some cyber news headlines next week. But I want to get right into my discussion with Arun Vishwanath. Again, he is a technologist, researcher, educator, and author. And he we talk a lot about social engineering. It's one of the better interviews I've done, I think. Uh, I highly recommend his book. If you, are a, if you work in a company and you're trying to protect yourself from cyber threats, for 20 bucks, buy his book, The Weakest Link, and make your security folks read it. It will give you a lot of different insights into cheap ways, or inexpensive ways, I should say, to take methodologies to reduce your cyber risk without having to buy tons and tons of technology. So um, again, I thank you for listening to the podcast. Please pass this one to anyone you think would be would benefit from our discussion. But let's go to this week's interview. Well, it's my honor to on, to welcome on to the podcast for the second time starting, Aaron Vishwanath. He is the founder and chief technologist for Avant Research Group, former associate professor at the SUNY Buffalo and author of the book, The Weakest Link, How to Diagnose, Detect, and Defend Users from Phishing. Arun, thanks so much for taking the time to and your patience for me putting this together and for allowing me to start this for a second time because we went through, I got three questions and realized I hadn't recorded. So now we're recording. So welcome, welcome hey, to the podcast. It's great to be here and it's an honor to be here doing all over again. Why not? All right. So let's talk. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about your background. What got you interested in researching specifically social engineering? Because your book is all about social engineering. If you are, if you own a company, if you're in a company, if you're in IT, it's a book you should read because it'll help you understand why you're still getting pounded with social engineering and fish testing. There you go. And so, so, you know, like most other people, you know, I stumbled into studying social engineering. Right. Uh, there's no direct path to it because really social engineering was something people never studied. Uh, I spent almost two decades of my career as a cognitive behavioral scientist. So basically what I was looking at is uh, how people, how users figured out technology. How do they figure out how to use it? How do they figure out what ways in which they could optimize it? Uh, you know, these are things like if you remember 20 years ago, people even five years ago, 10 years ago, you would still get a manual with many technology products. Today, you'll get something even like a complicated you know, Wi-Fi camera system, and basically it's a box and you figure it out yourself. Things have become a lot easier, but there's also a learning curve that people have shortened through repetition, through practice. And many of these things actually have an impact on you know, how you get susceptible to different attacks later on, and we can talk about that as well. But this is where my work was almost a decade ago. And, and as luck would have it, uh, you know, we had a phishing attack at my university, a spear phishing attack. This is one of those, uh, you know, first of the non-Nigerian attacks. So this had a, an email with a hyperlink and a password change request. And of course, you know, most people who saw that basically changed their passwords. I contacted IT, my IT department. This was before they were security departments. Um, and basically they said, well, you know, we don't really care. Uh, what we did is we just, and what they did essentially is not track any of this and send another email out asking everybody to change their password one more time. And, and this is the kind of loop you see over and over again, right? Where you have a password saying change email spear phishing that comes in, then you have another one that comes out saying, hey, that one was a fish. 
uh, don't change your password, change it one more time and everybody changed it back. Um, and, and, and I looked at this and I said, wait a minute, here's, a, here's the bad guy, someone out there who we don't care about, who's doing something enormously uh, good. It was very cool for its simplicity and its success rate. So when I tracked the success rate of this and I looked to say, hey, how many people clicked on this? 80% success rate. And so it got me to study social engineering to kind of replicate these attacks. And then I started looking online, I started looking at various attacks like Dark Soul, which was this attack that happened in Korea. Um, you know, it's a precursor to many of what happened in Sony Pictures later on in, in 2014. And I kind of started replicating just that, the conduits of these attacks on different different subjects of participants, of different user groups, and try to figure out, okay, how do we stop this? You know, is there anything that's gonna stop this? What kind of training, what kind of answers, what kind of awareness, what kind of knowledge? And so, you know, that's how I built kind of like this research protocol a research program on social engineering, which basically led to, in 2014, different articles. So when Sony Pictures happened in 2014, I was one of the few guys standing out there who had actually worked on this area from a theoretical research standpoint. Fortuitous, I mean, it was just pure luck, um, but it was something that I noticed was gonna be a problem. So I said, hey, you know what? Let's write about this. Let's try to draw attention to some of these things. And that's kind of like the journey that led me to where we are today. So did your school, so the, the school that got hit with the phishing tech, had they had, did they have the annual security training, information security training, don't click on links and all that kind of stuff? So, or did they not even have that? Yeah, back in 2012, 2013, there was nothing. Okay. There was no, there was no concept of these things. Right. right? So, so no one really cared. Right. Remember, these used to be IT departments, not, mm -hmm. you know, the, sure. we didn't have a CISO. You know, that's that's right, like, right, right. you know, you had you had a completely different paradigm that we were working in. And, and so people basically just ignored it. And in fact, you know, the funny thing is when I was studying social engineering and replicating some of these attacks, uh, I had people, other scholars, other researchers laughing at me, laughing me out of conferences and rooms. Literally, I would have an audience of one in a conference, for instance, when I went and presented some of this, basically saying, hey, why are you wasting time on something so small? Because for them, the idea was, hey, you know, it's a Nigerian phishing attack, just a different form, uh, and who clicks on that anyways? It's like a 0.01% click-through, you know, you're gonna have a spam blocker that's gonna take care of this. Why are you wasting time doing this? It's worthless. Why don't we study, at that time, Facebook, uh, social media, it was big, everybody was talking it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, 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 the point was that no one really cared. Whereas I kind of saw some value in, in looking at it from a, you know, usage and user understanding and user psychology point of view, which is why I persisted. And one of the great parts about your book that I really liked at the beginning, and I, didn't, I did not realize how the word thug came into the English language, but you talk about the thuggeries of the 1800s. So talk a little bit about, because they were would you call them the inventors of social engineering and kind of what they to did? Some, yes, yes. So, so, so the thugs were actually a cult, right? So the thuggies were a cult. That was the, the, the word that the, the, the thug described themselves, uh, or rather the word thug comes from the thuggy cult. And the Brits described the, the British colonials at that time. They were the first ones who actually started tracking them. So basically, you know, when you looked at the Indian subcontinent, uh, people were just dying. It was a very dangerous place to go between places. You would have many, many different kingdoms, but if you ever had to cross those kingdoms, you'd take the land route, which were these long caravans that would go, these caravans would get, you know, you would, you would essentially have a very high fatality rate in them. No one knew why. People just disappeared. <laughs> and no one tracked them, right? Because there was just no central tracking mechanism. And basically what was happening is you had these, these, this, this cult 
that was unified by you know rituals and language that they had of their own. Many of them were you know from different armies, so they were trained in weaponry in disguise. And basically, they were the first social engineers. So what they would do is they would have informants within these caravans, which would figure out who the wealthy people were, who the important marks were. And then these guys would dress up and basically uh, act like they were also travelers, take these guys, walk with the caravan, find you know important moments, and then you know essentially kill these people, take everything that they had, and then hide their bodies. So you wouldn't know what happened to them for almost three, four centuries. There were millions of people just disappearing. And... This was the genesis of this whole idea of the word tug, which was invented by the British colonialists when they started tracking this and said, wait a minute, there's something much bigger happening here. This is a, a unified network of social engineers that are actually working across the continent, right? Because all of these different kingdoms, they really didn't care what happened outside the kingdom. Whereas as a colonial power that was centralized, they actually did care. They wanted to you know, get everything to be cleaned out, especially the roads in between, because basically they were taking goods and products across the nation onto the ports to take it back to, in this case, you know, England. Mm -hmm. And so you have this whole group of people now being tracked. And then, you know, the word tug basically makes it eventually into the British lexicon, English lexicon from that little, you know, series of incidents that are happening in the English, in the, in the Indian subcontinent. And now I, I, that was a, I started reading about that guy, but this is great. And then you, you talk a lot and then you expand about how the Nigerians recognized what they did and started their stuff and all that kind of thing. And, you know, one of the things I mentioned when I do my presentations um, is, you know, 90% of the cases, the FBI works from a cyber intrusion perspective started because of some kind of spearfish email. And, but all these companies, every company, you talk to any company like, yeah, Hey, we do, you know, we do our fish testing and we, you know, we subcontract to, company a b or c i don't want to dime out the companies that rely right, on right. so on pen testing for that but um one of the parts of your book that's important a point to make that i don't think companies are realizing recognizing maybe they are now you you have your examples in the book but is that social engineering testing is starting to lose its impact if you're just doing fish testing and your annual training it, it really is useless so expand right. a little bit on that right. why is is it is just it's been oversaturated everybody knows what to expect from it now and it just and the bad guys are figuring it out and extrapolating off of it well you know let's go to the basis of this right so when we say fish testing basically it's sending people a, some kind of a mock fishing attack and tracking to see who's clicking on it right Right from the get-go, I mean, we go back to, even if you look at studies around 2004, 2005, uh, you had the Army Cyber Institute doing similar studies where they were actually doing this to Army cadets. They would send them a phishing email, and then they would train them, and they would try to see, okay, you know, did the phishing click-through rates go down? And basically, the phishing click-through rates went down for about an hour. Within 24 hours, the click-through rates went right back up. <laughs> so... We know back even in 2005, 2007, that this paradigm of doing these kind of training by phishing doesn't really work. It doesn't stick. So the paradigm itself is really flawed. This is why I said what I said earlier, right? I, I, you know, I, I made this quote where I said, there's some things that are, not left, that are best not left at the free market. You know, psychics, astrologers, and poor science. So we know that the science behind this awareness testing paradigm itself is very weak. The science itself shows that you know, it doesn't stick. Even you take these guys into a classroom and you teach them, you know, whatever format you want to use, um, the training paradigm of trying to educate people on fishing doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because everybody has a different reason why they're falling for it. 
Some people are clicking because they're not thinking. Some other people are clicking because they're mistaking something. Uh, and some people just have bad habits. So we don't understand the why. And so all the click-through rate studies are doing is trying to reduce the click-through rate. And that's just not effective, right? And there's a lot of problems with this paradigm, and we can talk about that. Um, one of the biggest, uh, the first problem, there's about five or six different, I've talked about each of these in my book. One of the issues that we have is, you know, there's no standard for what a fish test is. So what is a good penetration test? We don't know. And, and if you look at the fishing training tests that all these companies out there are putting out, there's no standard for what, whether a test is difficult or a test is easy. Like, is a test, difficult simply because you know it's got a lot of graphics in it i don't know <laughs> is it easy because it doesn't have graphics because it looks like i don't know an email that comes from you or i for instance if i sent you an email today or a bad guy sent you an email acting like he was me you, just a three-line email or even like a nigerian phishing email you might fall for it because you really don't know what kind of emails i send you right so there's there's no standard right now for what's a good test is it difficult? Is it easy? There's no standard for it. There's also no standard for what we should be testing on. Should everybody be tested on just basically password change? Or is there other things that you should be tested on? So for instance, uh, what about USB drop-offs, right? What about uh, looking at SSLs? Like what about, you know, the quality of VPNs? There's no question or no thought about, you know, what these tests are. So everybody use like a boilerplate that they find from the internet and then they keep making up emails, just literally making it up, sending it to people and assuming that all those emails are just good enough. So, you know, that's, so, so what are you training people to do? I, I don't know. I'm just training people. I'm just testing them. How do we do that? Right. Like, what how in, does that mean? Yeah. And what is that doing for so, you at the end? You, okay. So you can say, yeah, yeah so, so, we have 20%, 20% failure rate. That's great. If we can get down to 15, right. awesome for us. Yeah. But if you get down to one, is that good enough? What if the tests were really easy? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll give you a great example, right? So I, I was working for a, a, a Washington, D.C.-based agency, uh, which basically had the same issue, right? And I talked about this in my book. I, I give this example It's, it's a, where, you know, these guys had two years of fish testing. So two years and uh, once or twice a month they were doing these tests. So these guys were really well trained and their click-through rates were down to less than 1%. So that's phenomenal, right? I mean, after 24 months of spending money, they had a vendor sitting there doing this, less than 1% click-through rates. Now, you'd be like, hey, you know, this is fantastic. But, you know, they had a CISO, um, former Navy uh, submarine captain who said, hey, you know, I want to bring this down to uh, less than 1%. I want to get it down to zero. So he said, you know, he looked at my black hat talk and he said, hey, why don't you come and tell me, you know, you, you talk about this, this methodology you have. Why don't you show me what you can do? And I said, all right. There's only one condition in which I do this. I create the phishing test, all right? So I created a phishing test and I talk about how I create a phishing test. I have a framework that I use to create one. I test its difficulty level before I do it so I know exactly how it should be. So this is like a slightly above average test. I send this test out and you won't believe it. Within an hour and a half, I got a phone call from the CISO basically saying, hey, you know what? We have exceeded the click-throughs that we've ever got over two years. By the end of the day, he asked me to stop the test because we were already at 28. We were already at 28 <laughs> percent. Some of these guys were repeat, repeatedly clicking on the same attack. Mm -hmm. Now you see the problem, and and then when you know just to cut this long story, uh, at the end of it, one of the things that we found out: why were the click-through rates coming down? Where well, people were telling each other what when the attack was coming, and they figured out what an attack looked like when it was a pen test. 
Oh, okay, right? gotcha. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And and since this individual, uh, the the CISO in this particular case, was punishing a lot of these people, making their names public and all that stuff, they were helping each other out. So you had a departmental supervisor basically saying, "Hey, there's an attack that's coming out, guys. Be careful." Right. So, so you see the problem, right? And most of these things go unmeasured in today's paradigm, right? When you do any testing today, no one cares about any of this because you're looking at one statistic and trying to drive it down and you still don't know why it happened. So there's no answers to the why because the question has never been asked. So, so, so and that's yeah. just the first problem, right? So that's your first problem. The first problem is we don't know what a good test is. We don't know anything about that test. And I think that makes a good point. Another point your, your book makes is about user cyber hygiene. Because companies talk about cyber hygiene all the time. How do we, you know, do we have the right firewall in place? Right. Do we have the right rules to, to block whatever? But you mentioned, or you were the first to coin the term user cyber hygiene. So explain exactly how you came up with that and what it means. Because I think this is the better point. Because bad guys are not getting into companies from technical exploits that your cyber hygiene will protect they are targeting your users right. because it works social and it's proven for right, hundreds of right. years so so talk about user cyber hygiene. right and so so you know cyber hygiene is one of these terms that today is being used a lot right mm -hmm. and everybody uses to mean something else it's kind of like every time after there's an attack there's a congressional hearing and everybody says hey we should get better cyber hygiene. <laughs> right. it's like that term you use to beat someone on their head with after the fact yeah right? What is cyber hygiene? You know, so, so I looked at the genesis of this term for myself, you know, back in 2014, uh, early 2015, I was writing an article uh, which for the Associated Press um, where I was looking to explain what do we do? What is that, all those things that we can do as a user to protect themselves, not just from one social engineering attack, but from a range of cyber attacks, right? And then I, you know, it got me to a speech that Janet Napolitano, uh, when she was a DHS secretary, had given in 2013, so about three or four years earlier, at the Wilson Center. And she was talking about the Stop, Think, Connect um, uh, campaign that I, I, DHS was running at that time. And she used the word cyber hygiene to, descri to describe habits. She said, you know, we should have everybody get this habit, Stop, Think, Connect. Uh, and, it, and, and this is an important point I'm going to get back to in a bit, but that was the genesis. So I found that term cyber hygiene there. And I cannot said, hey, you know, you're thinking about this wrong, but here's what cyber hygiene really is. And then over the years, you know, I came up with the measurement for cyber hygiene, for user cyber hygiene. It's beyond just this idea of stop, think, connect. It's not just good habits. Cyber hygiene is not a habit that, and you can't replace a habit with a thought anyways. But cyber hygiene is this, you know, there are 20 to 25 things that you, ways in which you think, ways in which you act, ways in which you do, and ways in which you have the capacity to do in terms of the technology and all of that, that makes this idea of protecting, where you protect all your devices, your data, um, and how they are, be it on your device, or be it in transmission, or be it in the storage. You know, so that's the idea of cyber hygiene. So that's how this idea of this concept of user cyber hygiene comes about. And, and there's more to it than just kind of, you know, good habits, right? Cyber hygiene is a very big concept. It's not just, you know, here's a good habit. No, it's actually a series of actions, right? So for instance, it could be as simple as, you know, do you look at the SSL? Do you understand what SSL is, right? Um, you know, do you have uh, different blockers? What are those blockers? And so it's a series of things. And we talk about it across five different dimensions, right? So there's, there's the storage dimension, there's the social media dimension, there's the authentication di di uh, dimension, there's the transmission dimension, and then there's the email dimension, 
So we look at it and then there are the actions that you know to do. So all of that is in the book. There's a whole chapter on it. And in terms of the measurement, I even provide how you know an IT department can go about measuring this so they can get a number that says, here's the cyber hygiene score for Darren. Here's our own cyber hygiene score. So we can actually look at the score and we can look at the problems that we have and the gaps that exist so then we can fix it. And do you find companies trying to do that now or because I mean so my company deals with a lot of small and medium-sized companies that are in the dib space primarily yeah and you know they got one IT guy who does all the IT and security how do you get how do I mean how do companies of that size that have one or two guys that do everything to start engage in this kind of preventative measure to look at these things is it is you know, or even let, and let me reverse that to the bigger companies. Yeah. So, so let's take a look at it both ends. You have the small companies that have one or two guys that are like, I don't have time for this. And then you have the bigger companies yeah. that have, you know, I have a team of 20. I don't need this because we have, we, right. we are going to go buy this new tool because that's the tool I need. CrowdStrike has created right. a new endpoint detection routine that I can put in and that will solve all my problems. So how do you, right. how do you that's overcome right. and, both and of those issues? This is a problem at both ends. And you're yeah. right. And, and you're, you're hitting upon exactly the problem, right? And there's one more layer to this entire issue and that is security in general and especially IT security, right? Uh, they're very you know, risk averse in general. Right. And there's two issues. One is they're risk averse. Nobody wants to upset the apple cart. No one wants systems to fail by doing something that no one else has done. So everybody looks for precedent. Everybody says, hey, if if, uh, I don't know, let's say Cisco has done it, then maybe we'll do it. If Apple has done it, then we'll do it. That's Mm -hmm. how the big guys think. Right. This is why the big vendors keep getting bigger. So the first issue is is, is it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge risk of their profession to begin with. So even the small IT guys are saying, hey, do I really want to do something no one else has done? Why does it matter, right? That's your first problem. The other problem is IT security is a cost center, right? right. You'll have a, a CISO or a CEO rather, who will put billions in an app that says some AI jargon filled stuff that says, you know, I'll do this and that, which is most promises, which may never be kept, but they'll cut cost and security, right? No one's going to invest in a security tool or an idea that hasn't been tried before. They'll be like, yeah, let someone else do it. Right. Let them mandate it and then I'll do it. Yep. So here are the two problems, right? So, so this is pushing a string uphill. So we have the problems at the small level of cost, of risk, but on top of it, of time saying, should I really do it? At the top, you have all the vendors and you have the mandates. So if you're working for the federal government or you're a vendor for the federal government, you got to do this. You got to do fish testing. Why? Because, hey, they, they, FISMA requires you to do it. So you have all of these issues. These are structural issues. So my that was the idea behind writing this book to begin with, because what I'm trying to do is equip the guys at the smaller agencies and organizations to be able to do this, because this tool doesn't require you to change everything that you're doing. Right? If you have an existing uh, penetration testing program, you can basically take the cyber risk survey and insert it right into that. You can do a cyber hygiene survey just once a year and get baseline data from it. The same goes for someone who's got an established vendor in the, in the organization. It, 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 what's lacking right now is willingness, and that's going to be the hard one. And that's where people like you and I come in, people like you come in, which is you know, making sure that this word gets out there. Because doing what's in this book doesn't take a lot. In fact, what I have done is simplified it to the manner in which you can just basically take this boilerplate and and just inject it right into an existing fish testing protocol. So if you have a vendor right now 
that you've already paid for, a license that you've already paid for. You got nothing else. You got to buy a book and figure out, read it, and just insert the measurement into it, and you'll get better outcomes, better data than just a pen test data. Yeah, and you have a whole pyramid. And you'll be able to right. You have a whole pyramid at the in right. chapter ten that says do these things, right. and it costs you nothing other That's than it. read it the book and implement what's you in the book. book. Yeah, and, and 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 basically buy and read a book. Right. That's all we're saying, right? Yeah. And, and 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 to buy and read a book. I mean, I understand, you know, we, we will give them a 20% discount if they come through your, <laughs> sure, your yeah. podcast right. uh, to, be, to get the book. So we'll, so it's, it's not a recurring license, right? <laughs> right, right, so, right. So if, when you do the math on it, you're like, wait a minute. And, and most importantly, right, I, I ask this question of every, every CISO out there, right? Do you know the why? Can you tell me why your penetration test data says what it says? Mm-hmm. That the numbers have either come down or gone up. Can you explain why? And more often than not, in fact, it's almost the case every time we have done this. They don't know the why. And then the next question, do you care about it? If you don't care about it, well then nothing you or I can do matters, right? right? Uh, but if you really do wanna say, hey, you know, am I gonna be caught in some attack and not even know it? And if you really wanna make that difference to your own organization, then you gotta do it. And, and let's be honest, those numbers that we're looking at right now, when you look at, when you look at ransomware, when you look at the number of breaches that are happening, the cost of ransomware, you know, just not just mitigation, just paying out a ransom, right? What used to be hundreds of thousands of dollars and now in the millions, right? If you remember, mm-hmm. there was a you know, remote management tool company, I forget the name of them, that got hacked last year, and they were asking for $70 million in ransom, mm-hmm. right? Uh, yeah, I forget the name, I think it's uh, something with a K. Kaseya, was it Kaseya? Kesenia, right. yeah, Kesenia, yeah, that's right. And they, they asked for $70 million. And, and that, in fact, that ransomware, it was a remote management tool that infected like 1,500 mm-hmm. other vendors yep. that were right. using exactly. their, 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 their tool. So, so the numbers speak for themselves. I mean, if you're an organization out there using a tool that you think is really sophisticated from another vendor, watch out. Because yep. that vendor could get hacked. Right. And that guy, the bad guys can find their way into yours. So, so, you know, doing this, outsourcing it to technology, to layer on top of technology, to layer on top of technology, is just using a bad foundation to try to build an edifice over. Yeah, and if you're if you're a CISO, if you're a CISO, something you need to look into because CI, I don't think CISO is the right acronym for that position. It should be CISOASG. Chief Information Security Officer and scapegoat. Because when the bad stuff happens, you're the scapegoat that's going to get hit with <laughs> you're it. The one. That's, a, that's a nice one. I love that. Yeah. And that's so true, though. That's right. so cool, right? And so, so this book is written for them, basically saying, hey, you know, think about it. If you really want to answer it, and you should, mm-hmm. you can do it. You can answer the why, because then you can build defenses around it, right? Because if you can understand. So it's like this, right? Uh, you have people, you know, coughing and sneezing. The analogy I use is of coughing and sneezing. Uh, you don't want to just reduce the cough and sneeze and suppress it. You want to understand why they're coughing and sneezing so you can stop curing. So it doesn't spread and become something else. So it's not a, right. a, a weakness that's lingering in the system that eventually erupts into something way bigger than you expected it to be. Mm-hmm. So one of the solutions you present is you call it the SCAM framework, which stands for suspicion, uh, sorry, cognition, automaticity. If I'm pronouncing yeah. that right, uh, model. Yeah, so that's yeah, and you spend a good amount of time explaining how users who look at emails and such with a suspicious mind are less vulnerable to fall for phishing schemes. I think you and I probably have highly suspicious minds, and that's why we probably haven't been hit too often. But um, how do we get people? How do companies? So how do you get your users to be more suspicious? What is the what's overcoming the issue? What is the issue that is is making people say, "Well, I guess I should click on this because it's probably important to me," as opposed to saying, "Hmm, that looks questionable." 
Like going right. back to your example, going back to your example where the company came in and you did your own fishing test, they weren't suspicious right. enough. Like you said, they, they were protecting each other, but still, why wasn't there more of a suspicion to this? I don't know who this is. I don't expect it. Why I should ask? Because so, so 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 going back to that. So so let's talk about what suspicion is, right? Look at suspicion. I'm going to use that analogy I just used of coughing and sneezing, mm -hmm. right? Think of suspicion as a marker of illness. Coughing and sneezing, right? The intensity of coughing, the intensity of sneezing is a marker of underlying illness, right? And what causes it is what we need to get to, right? And what suspicion helps us say is, hey, there is this guy is coughing or this person is coughing and sneezing. We need to get to the, this person's got some, some disease. They're suffering from something. Uh, what is that something is what the suspicion cognition automaticity model helps us determine. It helps us say, hey, what is this person suffering from? Is it a cognitive issue? In other words, is it about how they think about something or how they process something? So how, what is how they think? Like in surveys I've done all over the world, for instance, right? If you ask people, hey, you know, you got an email with a PDF in it or you get an email with a Word document, what do you think is safer? A Word document or a PDF document? And more often than not, everybody will say, well, PDF is safer. And if you ask them why, they'll say, well, I can't edit a PDF. Right. So you see what they've done, right? They have a belief that's formed by doing something on the internet or on your on your computer. And remember, this is the post-manual date. We don't get a manual that tells us that this is how PDF work or this is a Word document. People use their own you know, judgment based on some surface level experience. He said, ah, I can't edit a PDF, so maybe the bad guy can't edit a PDF. The answer to the question, though, is if you get an email with a Word document and an email with a PDF, which one's safer? Neither. Right. <laughs> right? Yep. But then if I send it one with a PDF, the chances are people are going to open it. So this is a, a cognitive problem, a bias that you have, a belief. And there are many of these. And so, you know, in my work over the years, we've actually measured them so we know what are the most important ones that come by email. That's an example of one thing causing or reducing suspicion. So if I, you see a PDF, it reduces suspicion, for instance. There are other things. It's also how you process, right? So in other words, how much, how motivated are you to spend time looking at an email, right? Um, and there are other there are reasons why people may not be motivated. We have a lot of those measures in it. And then there's also habits. So what are habits? Habits are ways of doing things, rituals, which interfere with your thinking, right? For instance, there are a lot of these people who who believe that every notification that they come, you have a notification count that keeps going up. They don't like to see those notification counts going up. So you keep clicking on anything that comes in. So you get you know, zero notifications. So that's a habit. What it does, it stops you from thinking. You just kind of go through the process, go through the process, go through the process without thinking. So what we can do is measure these things. Once we understand a person's not suspicious, we can figure out why they're not suspicious. And it could be one or two or three of these things. And then once we know that, then we can address it. So if it's a habit, how do you replace a bad habit? Not through stop, think, and connect, right? So one of these issues, and this is a very important topic. I've spent a lot of time reading this, researching this, putting this on different tests, using different data. So think of something like stop, think, connect. Stop, think, connect is basically asking you to change a habit by thinking, right? So it's basically saying, hey, Darren, uh, you're, you know, without thinking much, opening these emails, clicking on the link or you know, on your phone or you're texting when you're driving, I'm gonna make you stop and think about that before you do it. That never works. It never works. How do we know it never works? We've done my studies in which we have noticed that once a habit is formed, the only way to stop a habit, it, it, it happens with humans. Remember there was, a, there was a cop, I think last year, 
who accidentally shot someone because she was reaching for her right. taser, but mm -hmm. instead had a gun there. Yep. Now this is under stress. What happens to people is the habits that are very strong is what will repl replicate themselves. And when you're driving, you're under considerable stress. You just don't realize it, right? So you get a text, you just open your text and start messaging. You're really not thinking. So if I say, hey, stop, think, connect, you're not gonna stop and think. The only way to change a bad habit is to inject a better habit. Mm. So it's not stop, think, connect, it's do something else. Right. You see what I mean? Yeah. So understanding what the underlying problem is, is what the scam model helps us do. Because once we do, then we can replace it. So for instance, if, if let's say you're clicking on every link that's coming in, or you're one of those prolific <laughs> clickers, for instance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I can give you, I can give you a device like, uh, which has, uh, you know, like a, in a walled garden, for instance, I can give you an iPad on which you get email. So the attacks get contained. So that's a very simple solution to a constant problem with this individual, right? And you may have groups of individuals who suffer from like some kind of a habitual issue. Um, you know, a simple thing as putting an external symbol or an icon that says external, different flag that says, hey, this email is problematic, stops a lot of thinking or stops a lot of mindless behavior because it replaces it with another thought. So in this case, if this is a thought problem, a cyber risk belief problem, a heuristic problem, we can replace it with another heuristic, for instance, right? So, so the point I'm trying to make is that we need to get to the bottom of it so you can replace these behaviors, replace these thoughts, and then once you do that, the problem's gone. You don't need to keep training people over and over again. The idea that, oh my God, I gotta keep training them ad nauseum in order to replace these behaviors, thoughts, habits, is ridiculous. It doesn't need to be done. And once they're stopped, they actually stop. The, 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 the response rate, when you start doing these fish tests, they come down. And they come down significantly, and we have the data for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I say. You know what I mean? Yeah, this and, is, yeah. Go yeah, ahead. I was gonna say. My, so I do. I've done a lot of presentations. One of the one of the lines that I use all the time. I use it repeatedly in the presentation. Is the reason these work is someone always clicks a link. And exactly what you're saying because that the, the habit they always click the link. That's why you, I mean I get so many text messages a day. That's like, hey, your package has been delayed, or your Wells Fargo, whatever. Click on this. Like, I don't have a. I don't have a Wells Fargo account why would i click that link but i mean i know there's people clicking it because i'm getting calls from That's family right. members saying hey my mother-in-law did this thing with amazon and she called the number and she gave them all the credit information and then part but, of that's just not, part of that's awareness and, and you yeah. wish yeah and, and you wish it was only or you hope that it's only people who are a lot older but the reasons there are a lot of people who are highly trained who, who, who fall for this because sure. number one the attacks are very good so the attacks are built to instill trust. Yeah. So that's why they use FedEx, for instance. In fact, I have a whole chapter in which I talk about how these attacks are constructed. I have a model called the V-Triad, which explains how these attacks are constructed. It's really important to understand that, right? So, so I can, this is why I can create an attack to reduce your suspicion and increase your trust, right? Which is how, if you think about even this year, I think in February of this year, Microsoft was hacked by a bunch of teenagers using social engineering, and they got the entire Bing source code and released it in the dark <laughs> web. And it was a social engineer. Now, this is a company that you know everybody gets trained repeatedly. Yeah. Right? So, so, so you have the technical-minded people in the top companies. You know, Apple's gotten hacked repeatedly. The last hack, I think, was some Australian kid, like a 17-year-old kid who basically hacked into it and got into their servers. Now, these are companies that are incredibly security conscious. NVIDIA got hacked, Samsung got hacked, all the tech companies have gotten hacked. And this was, this, this, and I'm just talking about this year's hack. 
Right. I think you make a point. You make a point in your book somewhere about the, um, what was it? Um, the DNC or was it solar? The Russians used a 14 year old kid for the social engineering attack. That's right. The DNC. Yeah. Yeah. The DNC hack was like a 14 year old kid. There's something about it. In fact, you know, one of the things I'm always intrigued, fascinated by is you have so many young, mostly teens using social engineering. Right. It seems to be kind of like the go to vector because it's the easiest vector to use. Mm-hmm. There's no cost to doing it. It's easy to do it. You can monetize it. I mean, the, the kid who the DNC hacked, this kid was driving Aston Martins and Lamborghinis <laughs> by the age of 18. I mean, why wouldn't he do it? Sure. I mean, that's the other thing. But but on the on the defender side, it shows the ineffectiveness of all the so-called defenses that we think we have put in, including the technical defenses, including the awareness defenses. What have we done wrong? Well, we haven't done anything yet to stop it. The weakness just remains. Well, you know, the problem is the technology changes so quickly that the scam changes with it. I have, so I'll give you two examples. I got hit with a scam. I mean, I pay attention to this stuff and I, but on my LinkedIn, I think I had open to discussing. I mean, I was, you know, you're always looking for the next opportunity. So I, um, something on my LinkedIn, someone sent me an email, say, Hey, I'm a recruiter and you have the skill set for a company I'm looking for. You know, can you send me your resume? I, there was nothing to click on. He just wanted to, I'm like, well, what the hell? I guess, how bad can it be? So I'll send him my resume. He goes, well, we couldn't get our, your resume. We couldn't get it into your, our system. It was like a Word document. So, but you need to convert it to whatever format for us to use, something like that. And I'd hit issues before with trying to put my resume into certain engines and you had to manually put it all in. So I go, oh, that makes sense because I've had this issue myself. And so I send him another version. So that still doesn't work. Use this company and they'll convert it for you. So it was a company for like $80. They'd convert my resume. So I'm like, well, 80 bucks, what the hell? And so I send the resume. They send it back. It was the exact same thing I just sent you. And I could, and then the guy never responded back. Well, hey, I just spent 80 bucks for a great story. <laughs> so, I, so I end up posting this story on LinkedIn and saying, this is what happened. Here's exactly how it happened. I, I put screenshots and everything. And I had like 100 people yeah. saying, I got that same email. I'm so glad I read your LinkedIn. But I ended up reversing it on PayPal. So I got my money back. So I got a free story right. and I didn't get scammed. But my other, my other story okay. is a, a friend of mine, his son wanted to uh, buy this NFT some funky NFT that some, I don't know, Pokemon character, whatever. And they were going to release it on Friday at midnight. But if you're in this Discord channel, then you could get early access to it for 250 bucks. And his son's like, I really want to get this NFT, blah, blah, blah. So they go to the website. He puts in his information. He pays the 250. Website was bogus. And this, again, another guy who um, retired FBI cyber supervisor, all he goes around and talks, he gets paid thousands of dollars, talk cybersecurity. He goes, I, I now have a great story for 250 bucks, but we should know, but I know. It, it's all, it's, I, know. It's, yeah. I think, I, I think, you know, I collect a lot of these stories, you know, and, and because just like you, right. Uh, people know that I work in this, in this, in this topic, people email me stories, people tell me stories or call me and say, Hey, you know, here's what happened. Did you know that? And so I have this, this compendium of stories and it's, it's, it's amazing how much, how often and how common they are and how easy it is for the bad guys to get away or most of them almost get away with it, right? Um, even if you made five bucks on a hack, you know, um, I, I had this one where a, a friend of mine was driving uh, and his son uses his iPad. Uh, you know, it's a baby. It's the greatest babysitter out there for yep. everybody out there with kids. And <laughs> exactly. So, so his son uses his iPad all the time. So here he's driving to work. It's, it's about 8.30 in the morning. And he gets a, a message, on, I think he gets an email from Apple basically saying, you know, hey, there's a $250 charge on his iTunes account. And he's like, holy cow, you know, my kid's using my iPad. God knows what he bought. So he wants to reverse it. So there's a phone number on it. 
right? It's a 1-800-APPLE number. And this is like, the, you know, I, I, I got to give it to them for the deviousness and, and how, how well they think about the human. And so right under the, and I've seen this email, I use it in my presentation. It, it looks like a formal Apple email. Uh -huh. It's got the logo, it's got the whole nine yards, and it even has a 1-800 number. He clicked on the 1-800 number, there's an operator who picks up. Um, and she was super helpful and she said, hey, you know, we understand, we can reverse this. Um, and they, of course, you know, they're, they're willing to reverse it, but they have a service yep. that allows, you know, tracking of this so none of this could happen. And it's an insurance against all future uh, such, um, you know, mis mistakes or what have you. And and he ended up spending, I think, $29 per month on it. Uh -huh. right? it's, it's a recurring fee, too. <laughs> so so he, he pulls over. Now, now here's, he's, he's driving. He's like, oh my gosh, and I it's two hundred fifty dollars. He pulls over, you know, he's on the side of the road, giving this person his credit card number. Mm. He gives the number. He sees the hit on the account. He goes back to work. It takes about an hour or so for him to kind of get to work, and then he thinks about it. He's like, what did I just do? <laughs> and, and and of course, he had to call his bank, and then he had to you know get a new card. And it's like this huge process. And at the end of the day, I I, I he did reverse it all. And it's a lesson learned, but it tells you, you know, what happens when you mindlessly do things. Yep. Right. And it's fear. It's it's the mindlessness of it. It's the understanding of human nature. It's having that one eight hundred number right under the Apple logo, mm -hmm. um, and it looks right. And having a person pick up that call in two rings, sound like an Apple employee, and and actually go through the whole you know explanation process. I mean, these I always see these. You know, the bad guys out there. They're not you know a kid with a hoodie in a basement. Mm -mm. You know, these guys are, are seasoned operators. You know, there are these scams uh, coming, many of them coming out of you know, former call centers in India. So telephone, they used to do back office operations for American companies, for Dell and all of them. You know, once the contracts expired, they get into this, where they get into basically a large call center operation. They are professionals. They plow back and they make millions. Most of the IRS scams in the United States come from India, unfortunately. And a lot of that money is plowed back into research, into R&D, into training. I mean, they have management meetings. You know, BBC did a beautiful, you know, in-camera, kind of a hidden camera kind of piece where they actually these guys doing training their staff on how to handle victims so that, you know, Man. people would pay them. And it's, they make millions. They make millions. So, it's, so we have to be more vigilant than it appears because these guys are not going to make mistakes. Once they have you, they make sure they close that deal. I actually recorded one of those guys. I got one from a McAfee saying, your McAfee expired, but we charged you $399. I knew I didn't have it. I know I didn't get charged, but there was a number. So I called it and recorded it for my podcast. Talked to the guy for like 20 minutes. He kept wanting me to download um, a remote a remote access yeah. manager. Yep. And right. I kept, yeah. I kept, yeah. I would, I kept like, he goes, okay, tell, now tell me the, tell me the password. And I would say like, okay, it's capital P one blue dog. Wow. And he goes blue. <laughs> and then like, so, and finally after 20 minutes, I go, look, I don't know what the scam is. I'm trying to get to the scam. Can you just tell me what that is? Cause I'm recording this for a podcast and I don't have more, I don't have time yeah, to download yeah. anymore. So he told me to F off and, and hung up. But anyway, so that's funny. Yeah, I, and I know someone mm -hmm. who actually downloaded one of these and mm -hmm. came from a Microsoft help desk attack. Yep. Where he, he actually is, he's in his fifties. And so, so he knows the technology. So he grew up with them. But you know he downloaded it anyways in the middle of the night. Um, yeah. He downloaded it, and once he downloaded it, this person walked him through it. They had access to his entire device for yep. 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I he came to me, I said, "No, let's unplug everything. You know, take this off the internet. Let's kind of go through it." And there was a rat running in the background. Um, you know, this guy who was in it had basically downloaded pretty much every file that was in it uh, that they could find on that on that computer. So they had 
siphoned off pretty much every data point. So sure. even though we were off the internet, the data were gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's crazy. So, so these guys are very good at what they do. Sure, and technology is is always changing, and they're always they're the first ones to figure out how to exploit it. So. You talked about, so your two parts of your book have to do with the cyber hygiene inventory. The other one's your cyber risk survey. So that's right. And, and so describe how, describe what the survey approach is, how companies can start to implement it. And what is the success been with it for companies that have done it? Right. So, the, so basically what the survey does is it gets to the why, right? So like I said, a lot of what we are tracking right now is basically click through, you know, is people, uh, is someone clicking on a phishing attack or not? Mm -hmm. and it doesn't only have to be a phishing attack, right? So for instance, just to the discussion we just had, right? The bad guys out there are using pretty much every modality. So they'll have a phone call, they'll message you, they'll call you, they'll use social media. So just doing email alone is mm -hmm. kind of quite limited. Let's be honest, because many companies you're using email, you're using social media too. So what the, the cyber risk survey, at least in the book, I'm only talking about it from an email context, but you can basically test many different types of social engineering attacks, right? So it's the entire vector of attacks. And so what the cyber risk survey does is it's, it's basically meant as a tool to capture the why. It's got one measure. It measures something very, very important, a very important symptom, right? And that symptom is suspicion, the level of suspicion. Like how much suspicion was there as a trigger? What we know is that when people are not suspicious, they usually ignore most things or they have some reason why they have ignored it or they have not looked or there's some habitual reaction that has come into play. So suspicion is like looking and counting the intensity of coughing or sneezing, right? It tells you what the underlying illness is. And the good thing about suspicion is even a little bit goes a very long way, right? If you, it's a, it's a very, very sensitive trigger. So I'll give you an example. I think it was the last month or the month before uh, there was a jet of jet move pilot who was walking through the airport at Buffalo, uh, where I am. And, um, you know, for whatever reason, the TSA agent let him through. He got onto the plane. He was about to take off. He, you know, he was starting, you know, the pre-flight checks. And the TSA agent kind of came back and said, hey, you know what? I want to give this guy a breathalyzer. Something, there was something that triggered this, this training that said, I just want to check. And this guy was, was, was way over the limit. This was in the New York Times, and, and he talked about, you know, that little bit of suspicion, that little trigger. He started to look for more and more, try to look, at, look to see how this guy was walking, you know, how this guy was carrying himself, and how this guy walked into the cockpit, how he was talking to people on the ground staff. And they kind of followed him there. And, and there was 140 people that were going to be flying to, to JFK from there, right? So it tells, you, it, it tells you that many of these stories where you'll see that little bit of suspicion is that trigger there was that jail warden, if you remember recently, she took off with one of the inmates. And again, someone saw a truck that was parked in a spot and felt there was something off. It's that sense. Suspicion is kind of like that sense that you can't point to, but you can feel it. And when you do, there are reasons why you feel it. And, and when you do, it's a huge trigger. So what the cyber risk survey does is it primarily measures suspicion and the triggers for suspicion. Once you get to the triggers now, the way you, there's two ways to do this. There's a measured way, like a survey that you could use to do it, or a very simple way to do it. And a more simple way is what I've offered in the book. And when you do that, with that survey, you can quantify their susceptibility to attacks based on that. Okay, so that's what it does. And, and the good thing is, any person can, any company that has does not have a fish testing protocol right now can implement this. They can basically create a phishing attack. I talk about how you do that in the book, how you create a phishing attack how you get like a baseline value for the difficulty of the attack and how you implement the cyber risk survey. If you're a company that already has a vendor program, and I've done this with many companies that have a vendor program, we can just basically inject this into it as an add-on measure. 
Okay. Now we've done this in quite a few companies, right? Again, you know how security works. Nobody wants to be, you know, the moment they know the data looks bad, many of them don't want to do it anymore. Yep. All right. But, but I've been successful with quite a few companies out there who are willing to go all the way, which is do the measure, do the follow up, fix it. And I have many examples in the book of how successful this has been. And it's been pretty remarkable in how much we are able to reduce actual risk, not the risk of just a click through based on some flawed data, but real time data. We get data on susceptibility using the cyber risk survey, we track it over time, and we look at reductions, 80, 90, 95% reductions. You know, we have in smaller companies, we have brought this down to basically negligible numbers. We don't have these multiple click throughs. We don't have people just doing things that they didn't even know about. And more than anything else, IT departments, they're very comfortable in knowing that they understand where the risk is or who's at risk. So they're able to build defenses around them. So if you know there are a few people who are basically you know, unmanageably risky, they're able to reduce access. They're able to reduce how the, you know, change how these guys access emails, change you know, what they're whitelisting for them, for instance, in terms of access, and reduce risk in the other indirectly. So, so there's direct and indirect risk reductions. All of these seem to work way better than they ever did in the companies we work. And we don't need the federal government to tell us how to do it, correct? Most importantly, you know, you know how that works, right? <laughs> sure, I mean, yeah, these, yeah. We saw we saw what happens when it gets mandated. It becomes, yeah. you know, everybody starts checking the box, like, and that's what's going on, right? Right. They're mandating zero everybody trust. The they they can't define zero trust, but they're going to mandate zero trust without having any. Under, I mean, it's a great buzzword. Zero trust is the greatest buzzword. And a friend of mine I've talked to several times, Chase Cunningham, I know he's, he's big into zero trust, but I think he even realized it's going to take a while to, to, to get it going. But I mean, if I see another article or have to go to another presentation about zero trust with the person doing the presentation can't really define how to create it. What's the point? That's right. But this is the problem with IT in general, mm-hmm. right? There, it's full of, it's, I, I hate to call it snake oil, but there's a lot of snake oil salesmen out there. Okay, and most of it, many of it, a lot of it. So you look at something like even technologies like blockchain. Ask anybody to explain blockchain to you, right? Without using the word ledger and distributed <laughs> ledger, in it. yeah. Because basically, what they're doing is they're giving you a circular logic, right? It's yeah. Basically, uh, a blockchain is a distributed ledger or a ledger that's distributed across computers. That's all that people understand. How does it work? No one can really sit down and tell you because they don't know how it's going to work. Right. Which means, how can it be hacked? Well, how do I know? Right. You just kind of use the word many computers and you say, well, you're not to hack every computer. Not really. And we have seen over and over again that many of these technologies, zero trust is one of them, right? Great terms. Oh, we're going to implement zero trust. And, and I, when I sat through some of the original presentations of zero trust, the analogy they used was of presidential defense, basically saying, oh, the Secret Service has zero trust around presidents. Well, if that's the case, why is it? And, and, and that's the analogy, right? So basically, they'll use this analogy. They don't trust anybody around the president of the United States when, when he or she, in this case, when he is kind of going through in a convoy, for instance. Mm-hmm. But then how do we explain the fact that in the last century, most of the president, many of the presidents have had hot shots taken at them, right. even with zero trust? Yes, exactly. right? We've not had that many presidents, but many of them, there have been very close assassination attempts. Uh-huh. That have gotten through pretty much every defense that was out there. Some successful. So, exactly. So, so the point is that we talk about it without really having a clear-cut understanding of how we would implement this in in a technology that's based on complete trust. Think about it. Every time you hit the you you click on a GUI, right? So you, I, I give this example of uh, let's say the unsubscribe button. 
you get an email, you get a spam email, you have a link called unsubscribe. You click on that link. How do you not trust that link? Right. You get, yeah, what exactly. They sent you the spam to start with. Website, which is a watering hole. Yeah. Because the whole idea is tr is trust. We trusted our device. We trusted you. Uh, so, so, you know, every time I hit the send button, I presume it sends. Yeah. What if it doesn't? No, we can. How do you say, okay, don't trust the GUI now? So, so what's the protocol for building a non-trust, a zero non-trust environment when the entire edifice of the internet is built on trust? Right. Uh, well, the I fun have to trust. And, and once I trust you and I let your, you know, password, you know, get stored in my browser or a session token get stored, that's the end of it. Yeah, and the funny thing is the bad guys trust too because I had a I had a case my in the first part in the first part of my career in the early 2000s this is when trust was really really worked out. Um, I yeah. had an undercover targeting folks distributing pirated software, movies, music, you know, because that was a big thing back then. And so I'd created this large 15 terabyte server farm where they downloaded all their stuff to me. Um, and I said, hey, you can trust me because I'm in Canada. Because I had, I had a source working with me as well. So he kind of gave me some bona fides. But we said, yeah, we're in Canada. If you do a trace route to our server, which was in North Carolina, I got the ISP for the trace route, the last three hops wouldn't display. And I said, those last three hops are leading me to Canada. And they all trusted me. They go, okay, I guess you're right. And they, they sent me all of their incriminating evidence. So I ended up arresting people all over the world because they trusted the same thing. And that hasn't changed in 20 years. People still trust. And, and, but that is the, the entire internet is based on yep. trust, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we trust more than we distrust as people, right? I mean, that's the basis of, of humanity, right? Every time I give you a currency note, I presume that, you know, that currency note is valid. You presume that the currency note is valid. We, none of us really looks at that paper each time and say, can I trust this guy? Can I trust this note? Somebody gives me a service. I pay them later on. They trust me. Everything is built on trust. And the internet is the space or the computing is a space that's completely an edifice of trust. Everything that I type on, let's say, a cloud server, I presume is mine. What if it's not? What if someone on the back end is only looking at every document and says, well, I know what she or he is thinking, right? The mm -hmm. entire edifice is based on trust. Every email is one of trust. The entire, you know, I'll give you an example of this. I think the White House OSTP under uh, President Obama, uh, they, you know, had this brilliant idea of disengaging any hyperlinks, making, you know, that would come by email. Right. There's was, was supposed to be such a simple and great idea. Right. <laughs> the great minds at NIST were saying, oh, that's a great way to do it. Why sure. not? Right. So what happens when you do that? Well, everybody copies and pastes right. exactly. the URL <laughs> exactly. into a browser and then the attack is right down. <laughs> and I have so many of these anecdotal you know, examples. Mm -hmm. There's there's a, another agency in a foreign country that tried to basically uh, come up with two, you know, a, a great firewall. What they did is um, they came up with two different systems, one only for email one set of computing pros, uh, computers just for email and one for everyday work and server space and all of that. So they figured, hey, you know what? This way there's an infection that comes via email. It's not gonna hop into the system. Well, here's the only problem, right, Darren? Most of us use email for what? For sharing files, mm -hmm. for sharing documents. So someone plugged a USB stick in here, took the file and plugged it into the main system. And the best part is because they thought the systems were secure, they didn't even look into it. Awesome. So, so here's the problem, right? So, so what's the zero test trust going to do here? What, you know, how little do we understand about people? I give the example of the of the NIST password change protocol that came up in what was it, 2004, where they said, well, every three months we got to have long right. and complex yeah. passwords and send a password reset email, and and everybody started doing it, starting with Microsoft. 
and what happened for and they changed that i believe in 2017 they reversed that yep. requirement and by the way the original requirement came not by studying people or users but by study, studying how hard it was for a computer to crack to brute force a, a password so they said wow it needs to be eight plus characters right well how many people fell for that attack and how many of the bad guys started sending out password uh, change emails right all of them yep so so it's 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 just this process where we have yet to figure out what the solution is because we are creating problems with more terminology and with more bad ideas without thinking it through um, I, you know going back to where we started i talked about how you know my university got a phishing email a spear phishing email they sent everybody an email saying well don't look at that right change your password one more time well target did the exact same thing they had like some 30 40 million customers who got hacked and they sent about 30 40 million of them an email saying hey you got hacked change your pa uh, passwords one more time so everybody does just follows this flawed process because nobody thinks it through. Nobody has looked into the user and said, hey, you know, what's really going on here? And that's what this book tries to do, right? It basically says, we know the science of people. We have a lot of that data. Let's put it to use. And I think I sent you a question about how do we create a paradigm shift, but I think your book actually answers that question for me with these two paragraphs that I highlighted out um, before our conversation. The first one uh, is the the um, cyber risk survey and the uh, cyber hygiene inventory convert the role of IT managers into agents of change. They are no longer just engineers implementing a solution or police officers disciplining users. They are instead problem solvers who apply cognitive and behavioral science to solve the people problem of social engineering. You need to do what Sleeman did. And Sleeman was the guy who who basically dismantled the, the thugs. Yeah. Establish trust with the users, diagnose the problem, identify the weak links, create an intent for change, convert intent into action, and stabilize adoption. You need to apply the science of measurement, data gathering, and analysis to profile users, find the weakest links, and protect them. Now you can. And I think this book does that for anybody who reads it and applies its concepts and can do it without having to buy this year's $10,000 piece of hardware that, that, that will sit in a closet until next year's 10,000 piece of hardware is created and, and replaces it. That's right. That's right. All come with a zero day that didn't, they didn't even know existed. Right. Exactly. Well, Arun, I, yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate you taking the time. I've, I've taken up a lot of your, your morning here on a, on a, on a nice, I hope it's not snowing in Buffalo yet. I, I grew up in upstate oh. New York myself and usually. <laughs> hey, we got the Bills game today. So oh, that's right. Yes. Yes. What's your prediction? So we got the big Bills game today. Uh, it's, the Bills are going to kill it. Okay. All right. Well, we'll hold you to it's it. It's our year. I think it's our year. We feel it. Yeah. Well, I'm a Cowboy fan, so I, I, I love their years in the 90s. I'm a big fan of those. I know. Well, it's bright and sunny in Buffalo. We're looking forward to the Bills game. It's going to be the start of a great season. I'll hopefully make it all the way. Nice. It, well, no, we deserve a Super Bowl. I Absolutely. Think. If anybody if, who's close, if, it's, it's the Bills. We've we earned it by losing enough. Yes, if any city deserves it, <laughs> Buffalo deserves something nice in February. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> if nothing else, we got to make it to the Super Bowl. How about that? After yep. last year's playoff loss, my gosh. I mean, that was that was probably the best NFL playoff game or the best game I've ever watched. Yeah. You know, the, the one we lost to Kansas in the sure. last, you know, in the overtime, in yep. a few seconds of the overtime. It was such a good game that they had to change the rules. because of the Right, game. exactly. Well, I, I saw we only so, we only touched the surface of your book. Um, maybe if you're willing in six months or so, we can have you back on and we can see if your stuff has been implemented anywhere more successfully and, or successfully again and, and get some ideas of how it's going. Yep, I'd love to be there, Darren. And for anyone who wants the book, you know, we're going to give you a link. Mm -hmm. I'm going to send you a link. You're going to yep. post it. I will. Podcast yep. show link. Um, you know, they get a 20% discount on the book. Uh, and more importantly, you know, anybody who's buying the book, I, you know, I recommend writing reviews, uh, 
posting reviews, telling us what they think about it. It's going to help others can understand what the value of this work is, and it's going to help me improve the work as we go along. Yep. And the name of the book is The Weakest Link, How to Diagnose, Detect, and Defend Weakest Users Link. from Phishing. Um, if you are a business owner, buy a copy, give it to your IT department, and tell them start doing this kind of stuff. If, or if, if, if companies want to have you come talk to them, how do they, how do they contact you? Well, I have a website. It's Arun Vishwanath, first name, last name, .us. I will post the link to that as well. Okay. Uh, you know, I have all my credentials there, my, my email address, my phone number. Feel free to call me. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of companies that I work with, uh, do a lot of talks, uh, especially cybersecurity awareness one about to be here, a lot more. So uh, feel free to ping me and I'll be there. Great. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Enjoy your week. Good luck for the bills. You too. Thank Thanks. you so much. Thank you. Go Bills. So once again, I want to thank Arun Vishwanath for taking the time uh, to talk to me on the CyberGuy podcast. It took a little while for us to, to get the timing right to do this particular conversation. I'm glad we did. Hopefully we'll have him on again in a couple of weeks because we really touched the surface of what his book is about, The Weakest Link, How to Diagnose, Detect, and Defend Users from Phishing in the, like he mentioned, in the show notes for this on the podcast, there's a link if you want to get his book uh, at a discounted rate. So, so look for that. Go buy the book. Pass it to people you know who, who need that particular information because with his book, you can help, as I like to say, understand the threats targeting you. You can then assess your risk and you can proceed wisely online. So with that, again, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen, download this podcast. Please pass along to all your friends. Let them know about it. Hopefully they take a listen. Again, our thoughts and memories go out to those 9-11 first responders who passed away on 9-11-2001 and who passed away later down the line because of their efforts to do the right thing the right way for the right reason. If you have questions, thoughts, comments on the podcast, give me an email, darren at thecyberguide.com. Know that knowledge is protection. Be safe this week. We will talk again soon. Thanks.